This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our Jikoji Sunday program. Today, I'd like to welcome my good friend, my dear friend, Beata Chapman, who uh, is a teacher in the Darlene Cohen lineage and has co-written a book with Darlene on, on uh, how to sit for people who have a difficult time sitting and, and the postures we take. She works for the city and county of San Francisco and has been helping the workers on the front line who are fighting the pandemic. So welcome to Jokoji Biata. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Doug, and thank you for inviting me to be here with you. I very much appreciate the opportunity to uh, talk with you and just hang out for a little while with some Dharma this morning. So it's almost one of those times where there's nothing to be said, but still, you know, here we are together. So we search for what might be said at a time like this. We are certainly culturally facing the many chasms that we have turned away from that are now so obvious and visible and painful, just painful. Um, And I struggle with how to be with this and how to be a, a, a Dharma practitioner in the middle of this and still stay with it and not try to make it something it's not in either direction, uh, just be with it as it is. It's uh, one of the greatest challenges of my life, I think. Uh, my Most of my siblings are uh, Trump supporters. My brother in particular, I found out yesterday, has sort of gone the way of QAnon. And so this is personal. It's not distant. It's not far away. Um, And how do I, how do I be the little sister? (laughs) Well, the little part, probably. (laughs) Just let's let go of that. But backing up from the little part, younger sister, his sister, someone who cares about his life and cares about him and his children and and stand in my own place. Um, I've, I've said, well, how about just giving up my place? Just don't speak, just listen. Somehow that doesn't quite work. So, so I'm gonna speak from my own life and my own experience today, as well as bringing in some, some of the Dharma, not so much to, to maybe back that up as to just encourage practice with our lives, that uh, this is the source of, of refreshment and nourishment in these times. And so um, in preparing, I 
it always happens to me that I just open a, a Dharma book and there it is exactly what I meant or wanted to convey. And in this case, it's from Shobo Genzo Juimonki. I went there searching for another um, citation, but I happened upon book 115. So Juimonki is a, a part of the Shobo Genzo um, and written by Dogen. And in this case, it's a collection of lectures by Dogen that he gave at, when he founded, I believe it was when he founded a Heiji. Uh, in any case, the monastery was very small. There weren't a lot of monks in attendance. He talks about that quite a lot, about the size of the Sangha. Um, but in any case, I have been a big fan my whole uh, Zen practice of Weka, the second ancestor, the heir of Bodhidharma, who stood outside Bodhidharma's cave and, you know, uh, ultimately really wanted to study with Bodhidharma and Bodhidharma refused him and refused him. And his complaint that he went to Bodhidharma with was mental anguish, mental anguish. And we can interpret that in a lot of different ways. Um, but uh, for me, it works to interpret it as mental anguish, um, <laughs> mental pain and uh, confusion. And Bodhidharma declined him and so finally uh, Weka cut off his arm. That's the story. He went out and he cut off his arm and he brought it to Bodhidharma. And I've said often, it really doesn't matter whether he cut off his arm. That's not the important part. But uh, then I read this from Dogen. So, you know, centuries later, Dogen writes, it says, Dogen instructed, it is rather easy to lay down one's own life and cut off one's flesh, hands, or feet in an emotional outburst. Considering worldly affairs, we see many people do such things, even for the sake of attachment to fame and personal profit. So in an emotional outburst, the energy of that is enough to fuel almost any action. And, you know, adrenaline is a powerful drug. Uh, I, I, I actually work with adrenaline in my world with people with pain and using it as a means of getting through but then knowing that the price for that is the is what it leaves the residue of adrenaline in the body so adrenaline is so powerful it can completely obliterate the most severe pain for a period of time it's a very very powerful drug that we generate in our own bodies um and yeah in a nice burst of emotion and a nice uh, adrenaline burst, you could cut off your arm, I guess, and maybe it wouldn't be so hard. Um, such a big challenge to do something so dramatic. I personally think that those old Chinese stories, you know, uh, it was an oral tradition. And so things like a story about cutting off one's arm is a really good uh, mnemonic for the teaching. It's a good way to remember dropping the self and, and you know, and deep devotion to, to teaching, uh, being willing to give up everything to study and practice. And here Dogen is saying, yeah, and, you know, it's relatively easy at the end of the day to do that in an emotional outburst. And he goes on. Yet it is most difficult to harmonize the mind meeting various things and situations moment by moment. 
A student of the way must cool his mind as if he were giving up his life and consider if what he is about to say or do is in accordance with reality or not. If it is, he should say it or do it. So in the midst of riots on the Capitol building and hang him and kill them, a student of the way must cool his mind as if he were giving up his own life. How does that work? In the greatest existential threat, non-existence, the student of the way must cool his own must cool his mind and consider. So must be thoughtful in that, under that tremendous stress, under that, under those conditions, must consider if what he is about to say or do is in accordance with reality. And it's interesting to me that Dogen doesn't say in accordance with Dharma, although the term reality and the term dharma may be interchangeable. But reality is kind of a subjective word, seems to me. And I don't know. But it's, it, it was interesting to me that that, that that was the word. And it brought me right to the question of, well, what is, A, what is reality? What does Dogen mean when he uses the term reality? And what do we mean? What do I mean? Um, so cool your mind as if you are giving up your life. I think there's a simple way to kind of say that. And it is let go or be dragged. Right? Let go of self-clinging. Let go of your righteousness and your opinion and your idea or be dragged as if you were connected to the bumper of a car all over somebody else's landscape. Right. Let go, open the hand, open the fist, loosen the grip, or be dragged. And I think that's kind of cool the mind, loosen the grip, let go, create spaciousness. That's what Dogen is calling us to do in the midst of the riots, in the midst of our suffering, not separate from our suffering, but right there, as if you are giving up your life. And consider, so what is this reality? So I think um, in terms of right view, we might include in our definition of reality the, the truth of impermanence. That, you know, those of us who have sat facing the wall, we know this truth. This is not a question. Uh, what arises uh, falls. What is born ceases to exist. Um, the only place to meet reality is in the unborn. Right. So 
that brings up the question, once born, can I perceive reality? I don't know, but I don't want to go that far. <laughs> I'm not quite prepared to go that far this morning. But let's include impermanence as something we can accept as the truth of reality, part of reality. Everything changes. Everything is always changing. Here comes my dog. I apologize. Lay down, buggy. <clears throat> so it is impermanent. I believe we can say, we could perhaps agree that what we would accept as reality among ourselves as practitioners is that there is no own power. That I on my own, Beata on her own, doesn't have power, but she co-arises. You know, this Beata co-arises in this moment. And in this moment, you know, Beata looks pretty good right? She's teaching, she's in front of other people, she's visible. Uh, she's, yeah, she's looking all right. She's looking like maybe even she knows some Dharma. She's looking pretty good. You know, she knows service, right? Beata's looking all right right now. But when the mind is not cool, right? I like to say I'm a great zenny in my living room. I open my door and I got problems because the mind is dragged so easily uh, by my conditioning, by my own conditioning. It's not being dragged by the world, being dragged by my own conditioning. But anyway, there is this no own power. And in order to recognize that, I need to know that there's a wholeness to reality and sort of accept that there's a wholeness to reality that's not always the first thing I notice that my conditioning will bring me to my experience in a particular slant. We sometimes call it bias, there's lots of words for this, but it's sort of a preset, a predisposition, it's, it's conditioned. It's, I'm already knowing what I'm seeing. When I arrive there, I know what I expect. <laughs> and so, so, uh, so to, to know reality, I also have to stand looking at this flower and know that what I am able to see may not be the wholeness of it. And to keep opening and keep opening and keep looking and keep opening. And, and when I can do that, the thing I'm noticing, the thing I'm opening to comes forward. And Dogen talks about that in another part of the show book and so that you're all, I'm sure, very familiar with. So there's this willingness to see the whole and some of the whole might not be beautiful. It might not be pretty. It might not be, it might be the underbelly. It might be my brother is in QAnon. It might be this person I love, you know, I don't know, can I, am I safe with him? It might run that deep. And so how am I with the wholeness of my experience, not just the part I prefer or have taught myself to see over and over again. So I think we could, uh, we could bring that into our definition of reality, that it's whole, it has a wholeness. And then, then I think the third piece would be the non-duality of, of experience that if I may tend to only experience one side of it, but in being a practitioner of the Dharma, I know that there is a, um, that, that what comes up as 
as uh, this or that also contains its opposite. It is non-dual. There are not two, actually. So to me, when I looked at all of that at once, uh, it reminded me of a talk Darlene Cohen gave years ago. And she said, in order to see what is, you have to climb over the mountain of preference. Climb over the mountain of preference. You need to get your eyes over it. And just look at what else is there. I think she was saying this same thing. So to do that, in order to climb that mountain of self-preference, be willing to put my nose just high enough to actually see maybe, oh, what somebody else prefers. Or, oh, there are other whole ways to think about this that have nothing to do with Beata. Really? Who knew? Right? To do that, to open myself to that, I have to drop self-clinging. I have to drop self-clinging. And that's what Dogen means, I think, when he says, uh, as if he were giving up his life. To open the hand, drop the self-clinging, for that moment and allow in something else. Who knows, this unknown, this not knowing mind. And that, and that brings me to the second foundation I've decided of seeing reality. And that is vulnerability. That ultimately it's being vulnerable. It's being willing to have my heart broken again and again and again, and to climb up there again and peek over and, 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 and again and again, because as Darlene said, if you're constantly dodging the bullets of reality, you cannot absorb your life. So we have to sit upright and receive and absorb and be affected by and at the same time let go or be dragged in some way holding my place is not about holding on it's about letting go letting my brother be my brother and letting the riot be the riot and and having the radical i'm not saying i always can do this but having the radical spaciousness that is the Dharma way, that is the Buddha way, that is about allowing and uh, allowing reality, this unhidden nature of truth, of non-duality and no own being to be the drivers of my saying and doing. Uh, it's a uh, it's a lot. <laughs> so thank you all so much. I hope we can have a conversation now. Any questions or comments? Anything to add? What's your teaching about these times? How yeah. are you doing this? Yeah, I'm Judy. Um, in, also in the vulnerability, there there must also be compassion. Not just for our one side, but all sides. 
And that's my that's my only comment. Yes, thank you for that, Judy. That's right. Because without compassion, it's really not possible to be vulnerable. Uh, to lay oneself bare in the truth, in the midst of the oncoming <laughs> uh, truth is uh, none of us will be perfect there. We've, we have to bring tremendous compassion to ourselves, to one another, to hold each other up in our frailty, not separate from our faults and failings. I have to hold my brother up because he has fallen for this QAnon thing, not because he's strong and rises above it, but because he needs a hand. No matter whatever that might be, and I don't know what that is, but yes, it requires tremendous compassion, which also requires some trust. That's very hard to, very hard to open that hand of trusting, you know, extending something beyond what I know. Uh, thank you for that. Chris. Thank you, Beata. I... Hey, Chris, good yes. to see you. It's good to see you as well. Um, I think you I really resonated with your message today. And um, um, I don't know a whole lot about QAnon, except for they seem to have a lot of wacky theories <laughs> uh, <laughs> about things that um um but i think i can relate to the fact that you know there are people uh, many of us not just those people but us that gravitate towards kind of wacky ideas um because they need perhaps to uh, on they're a tribe of some kind and that need to be belong to something is more important than their own rationality perhaps at times um and that from that standpoint i i can see that in myself uh that i want to lean on a sangha or i want to lean on perhaps an ideology or a particular way of thinking and if I can focus on that, then I can see common ground. And then I can, mm -hmm. and that's an avenue for compassion for me. Mm -hmm. And I don't have to think of them as evil or hateful or mm -hmm. whatever. And I can kind of try to meet them at some point if mm -hmm. that opportunity arises, which it's not likely to because I don't know any <laughs> QAnon people. But, um, but I, I think that, as you pointed out, letting go of the self and that strong, that strong urge to just kind of hold on to uh, my own self at, at, and, and, and make myself completely different from the other is... Uh, mm -hmm is a um, 
impetus to do that and make an effort to do that and every moment and every encounter with another being and every mm-hmm. uh, thing we observe, no matter how hard it is. Mm-hmm. It's easy, it's easy to, uh, to uh, love people that you agree with. <laughs> it's a lot harder yeah. to um, offer that to others that you disagree with. Thank mm-hmm. you. Thank you, Chris. Yeah. You know, I spent my adolescence, some of you know this, I spent my adolescence in a religious cult. Um, so I, 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 uh, I have a tremendous uh, and very, very deep understanding of what puts people there. And uh, my mother was a member of this cult. Um, and um, so whether we want to use the word cult or not about QAnon, I don't know. It, it doesn't matter to me, but it is a very powerful set of beliefs that seems to be being driven by charismatic leaders. And that's enough for me So uh, to define it in that way. And there's tremendous, you know, sort of built culture building underneath it. Um, but I have to say that I think one of the most natural things that human beings do when they're in tremendous pain is look for a savior. I think we all have this in us. Look at what George Floyd did laying on the asphalt. Mama, mama, right? Looking, who can help me? Who outside me can come and save me right now? Mama, I think, is the universal savior. When people are dying and suffering, they call out for salvation, for help, for, for salve, for comfort. And, and we call to people, we, or, or God, or uh, Darlene said, told a story, loved to tell this story about her husband, Tony, <laughs> that they were at a party one time, a Zen Center party at somebody's house, and they, that Tony was in the kitchen talking to somebody, and she overheard him say, she overheard Tony tell this person that, yeah, Tony accepted Jesus Christ as his savior, and Darlene said, you know, hey, uh, you know, the desire for a savior can make you forget your religion. And, and I think it's a very powerful thing that we as humans see our frailty in these moments. And when there's nothing we can do, we reach for an answer or a, and it's very comforting. And I don't want to make that bad. And at the same time, um, you know, I look at it in myself all the time when I am reaching outside myself for something to fix me or help me or give me the answer that will get me through the day or through the night or through the, you know, or the med or the, what you know, fill in the blank over the many years of things, the television, the whatever, it, you know, uh, things I look to as sort of temporary saviors in moments in my life. So I think that tendency is very understandable and, um, and reflects a level of pain that is, oh, just about unbearable to be willing to give over, you know, your, your, your own sense of mastery to somebody else's uh, thoughts and ideas. Very deep pain in that. So that also helps me have a certain empathy for, because I look, I look, I look when I'm in a lot of pain too. So I want to address the pain. I want to get under the uh, looking and let's talk together about what hurts, where it hurts. Let's move to that and bring the compassion that Judy 
brought forth so beautifully to one another and to our pain, which is shared. It's one pain, it's our pain. We use different words for it. So I wish, I wish for us to get there, even though it, it won't be pretty. Thank you, Chris. It's great to see you. You know, Ada, thank you. Uh, I have a question. Um, there's a, it, it's hard to understand what it is we're seeing sometimes. And um, um, there's been some talk. Uh, Mike and I have talked a little bit about it, but I heard uh, um, a, a publisher of this uh, thing called The Ink. His name is Ananda. I forget his last name. He has a long name. Yeah. Uh huh. What we were what we were seeing on January sixth was a funeral. Mm -hmm. That um, so in a way when we're meeting these people who have this uh, the, these notions these these views these beliefs they've uh, um, they're afraid they're afraid of losing yeah of course something that maybe they don't even have but it's something they imagine mm -hmm. to me that that helps me meet them in a different way than yeah. if they were on the ascension, if this was a birth of, a, of something, but that, that it might be kind of how things are gonna wrap up because uh, we are a diverse uh, world and uh, our, our country and this new administration is gonna be way more diverse matching the diversity of the world and the gender equality as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so how do you, does that help to um, look at, at this as like a funeral? Uh, these people are give up. Yeah, and usually when I'm at a funeral, it's not something I want to give up. I'm sad about giving it up. If I could hold on to it, I would. You know, so um, yes, I think the fear, the tremendous amount of fear that is driving it, fear of literally loss of life, that's the, that feels like the energy of it. Uh, we will not have a country. We will not be able to live if we don't fight. Um, that's such deep, deep, uh, mind-bending terror that's driving it. Um, so I, I really can, I can sense into that terror and bring that to the table as a, uh, as a source of empathy and compassion, for sure. Um, and I believe they are feeling that. I don't agree <laughs> with how they come to that conclusion. I have a different point of view, but I absolutely feel the terror and, and how, what a thing that is to live with every day. And I do have compassion for that. Yeah, thank you, Doug. Thank you.
Um, hear me okay? Yeah. Okay, yeah, thanks. Your, your talk was wonderful. It, it really got me thinking about things. And, and one of the things I was thinking about as I was talking of, for myself, I feel like I'm in my own bubble of observing and seeing uh, emotionally and mentally what is going on in Washington and that that whole event mm -hmm. and and you're talking about the radical spaciousness of the Buddha way or over your your thing of self-preference but I'm thinking if I was not in my bubble if I was there yeah let's say I was a congressperson there or let's say even something even more radical that I was a father in Syria, I had children and my city was being bombed or people were, you know, mm -hmm. how, um, yeah, I'm, I just think for myself, when I look at this stuff, I'm, I'm uh, it could, it, maybe later on it will be different. I don't know, but I'm just thinking of that our practice and taking it to a level that is maybe this doesn't make any sense to a completely more radical level of having to, to deal with something that is um, impending danger or mm -hmm. tremendous fear or I have no idea what to pull on them. And, mm -hmm. uh, and maybe, maybe this question just sort of, is is losing track of what you're trying to go on but i think it that's what that's what it got me thinking on that gee i live in this yeah a little yeah. bit of a bubble here and i'm, I'm yeah. observing this from you know but okay yeah so i don't know if you have anything to say about that well it's so easy to do from afar i mean i think that's what you're saying you know yeah, yeah. I, I think you're absolutely right i think we can have a sense of distance from it that makes it a little easier to have spaciousness and to think all these ways. You know, we have the luxury of not standing on the Capitol steps when the crowd shows up or being part of the crowd or in whatever way, being closer to it, um, you know, personally. And I, I think that's very true. And I think both, so again, it's about causes and conditions, right? Right now, you and I are lucky enough that we're sort of outside this. We can kind of look at it. We're in and we're out, but we have certain distance. So we can, we can enjoy the privilege of talking this way and thinking about it and pondering how we want to practice with it and practicing with cooling the mind under these conditions helps us. Should we find ourselves in the hot condition, mm -hmm to still be able to find a certain spaciousness there. Will it be the same as the spaciousness we can find in our bubble? Absolutely not. And nor should it be, it wouldn't be appropriate for it to look the same in that condition. Mm -hmm. um, but our practice is not about cookie cut a, a response across mm -hmm. conditions, but meeting mm -hmm. the condition. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to know what one might do, but all I can do as Suzuki Roshi said is you know shine one corner shine my bubble <laughs> make it as as clear seeing as it can be so that should I find myself in a different space hopefully I can meet it with an appropriate response yeah 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 okay, right thank you yeah thank you 
I think it's 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 incumbent on us as practitioners to practice persistently so that we are prepared or can be as prepared to bring the Dharma, to bring our practice into very difficult situations. But it doesn't show up on the steps. It shows up in the <laughs> in the practice that leads to that moment. Thank you. Much appreciate your question. Hi, um, Beata, can you hear me? I can. Hi, Hogan. Hi, Beata. Um, thanks so much. It's really, it's good to see your face and good to um, feel what's coming through you right now. Um, Something that really caught my attention was uh, you speaking of uh, adrenaline, uh, speaking of, and I'll, I'll generalize on it, um, heightened states. Yeah. Um, and I think also you alluded to um, dealing with the aftermath of these mm -hmm. states right. or the residue. <laughs> and that's, that's something that um, I notice is a, uh, is a challenge for me where I'll, uh, for instance, yesterday I went to help with some friends who were moving. They were they'd been in an apartment for twenty some years and had bought a house way up in the foothills and were going to leave. And um, I didn't know what I was stepping into, but I said, "Yes, I'll help you move on Saturday morning." And and I and I showed up, and uh, and soon after I arrived, <clears throat> it was a very large moving van, and then some friends. Some actually, some they were Mormon missionary young men that, through some connection, had been asked to come help with this enterprise of carrying all kinds of things, and and I found myself very naturally and happily falling into this very heightened state of um, helping to direct these like six or seven guys. It happened all so fast; I can't even tell you how many guys there were, and. And I felt a bit of a flow and a heightened state um, and um, very um, in the moment, not as stressful or aggravating situation at all. Yet I know at the end of it, at the end of the day, I'd spent maybe just a, a few hours in this, maybe three or four hours when I left and that heightened feeling naturally started to spin down. I found myself actually in a for something of an unpleasant, unpleasantly exhausted place. And I'm not sure what it's all about. Um, you know, I've reflected a bit and perhaps it's that uh, wrapped up in this was that my friends are leaving, you know, they're moving away. I, I won't be seeing them. Um, but more generally, I, I noticed this pattern in myself of uh, past I have been uh, in, in uh, modes where I, I craved arousal, physical or mental arousal. And, and it would be very satisfying. And um, it would be, there would be something of a release to it. But then there would be this, something I can't figure out, something of a shadow afterwards, a shadow that 
actually un almost undermined the experience itself. It almost in, in, in these later years has made me suspicious of entering into heightened states because of this, the things that arise when I'm exhausted from them. Yeah. I can, I can see that you know, you're struggling with something caught in your, I'm sorry that. No, no. It's just, I got this itch in my throat that doesn't want to let me go. Yeah. Oh. Um, it's okay. But I was able to hear you. Oh, good, good. Yeah. So I guess, so that's my story. <laughs> my, my question is my experience of these adrenaline or heightened state mm -hmm. usually also includes a time in which I have almost a despair, like almost a, right. it's the residue, it's the, it's the hangover, it's the aftermath. Yes. And do you have any, anything that you can offer to me as ways to look at that, that aftermath uh, or ways to prepare for it or, or just ways to reframe it because I struggle with it. Yes, yes. Thank you. It's a great question. In chronic pain world, we call this the rebound. <coughs> it's the rebound effect where you go up, you're taking a medication, ibuprofen, something for pain. The pain gets a lot better. You think, I could do anything. You go out, you dig your garden, you, you know, plant your trees, you hike five hours, you come back and, and you spend two weeks in bed trying to recover. So, um, or more simply, uh, you're taking ibuprofen for a couple of weeks. It's doing a lot of good. You get through your life much more easily. You decide it's time to stop and your pain heightens through the ceiling. And that's commonly what happens. Um, the body somehow in coming off chemicals makes a pendulum swing mm -hmm. almost to the opposite side. So Darlene called this the tax and the how tax. Darlene, the tax, it's a tax. So, okay, sure. I'll help you move. And then you say to yourself, okay, uh, there will be a tax, right? And you go in knowing you're going to pay the tax and the value of that is that then you make sure that that moving was worth the tax. Mm. You just make sure that that experience, <laughs> you know, so find some joy there, find some, some, something worth the tax. This is mm. Darlene. Darlene would say, so Grace Shearson one time, I just love this logic of Darlene. Grace Shearson says to Darlene, these shoes are killing me. I, I just bought them. I, I love them, but they're killing my feet. And Darlene said, well, you better wear them a lot to get, to get your money's worth, to get your, your value out of that tax, right? You better, you better make sure you get a lot out of those shoes, right? So framing it in that way makes it almost like you could just look at it as, okay, this is tax day. That's all. Yeah. This is tax day. And I'm just going to watch it. I don't have to fix it change it it's just tax day it's a natural part of what of what the body uh in, and as we age it takes longer for these things to work their way through the body so by interpreting it that way i think you loosen the grip you just let it work its way through your body that's all it's doing it's just chemicals moving on through so you just have to give them time and not get in your own way by making it a whole story about yourself or about what's going to happen in the future, or I'm going down with, you know, something my mind tells me something mm -hmm. like that. And then the next day I'm fine. The tax mm -hmm. tax day has gone. Yeah. So 
just to sort of put a boundary around it. Thank you. That's it's it's very helpful. If I, a couple of comments, um, one I'm I'm reminded of um, when you mentioned the tax day. I I had a good friend several years ago, and and we were sort of partners in crime, partners in, in self medication behaviors. And she, oh. <laughs> she had this sort of actually very wise thing that she said was that um, well let's we're going to borrow a little energy from the future right now. We're just going to borrow yeah. a little energy See? from the future right. so that That's so right. that this moment can be a little more heightened and a little more exciting. But yeah. she was, you know, fully, you know, fully uh, cognizant of, you know, it's not as if we get off for free. All right. You're there's not a, adding to the energy. Yeah. There's a tax to be paid. I like that. Yeah. And also I, I felt a, a little bit of a, a wariness or suspicion <laughs> um, when you described what I heard was heading into an experience that is somewhat heightened. For instance, my experience yesterday um, uh, I, I heard you um, suggesting that I acknowledge in that moment that there's going to be a price to pay for this or, and there's, there's part of me that resists that. There's part of me that is so just does not want to have any hesitation, wants to just, just enjoy something, something in the world that has aroused me, has excited me and had me very engaged. So I'm, resist I'm resistant to what I thought I heard you say, like, no, I, I don't want to talk about it at all then. But I, I guess now as I say it out loud, I'm realizing that no, it could be, could be worthwhile. And, and my resistance is, is a grasping at, no, I just want pure good feeling right now. I don't want to do any, any sort of management of this, but I think I'm hearing you say a little bit of management might be healthy. In, in, am I interpreting that right? Well, I think when the idea arises, if the thought crosses your mind, uh, oh, I might be hurting tomorrow, or oh, I'm heightened, and then that little moment where you think, uh-oh, there's going to be a to that, right? In that, just that, if you just say, oh, it's just a tax. Mm. It's not that you have to prepare, but you make it something natural. That's a natural part of this ebb and flow of, of energy. And you just, it's not that you have to put it as a shadow over your current moment, but almost like you use it as something to, to point out the poignancy of the current moment. Mm. Like in this moment, I have this heightened state. Wow, let mm -hmm. me see. Like, and I know there's a, that's okay. Even more, I want to use this. I want to notice this. I want to, it makes it the flower all the more beautiful because it only blooms once a year. It's not mm. going to last very long. You know, it's that kind of energy as yeah. opposed to preparing or telling yourself this five times before you arrive or anything like that. It's more, it's much more fluid than that. I think it's an, it's an antidote to the thought I'm up, I'm coming down. Right. Um, oops. Oh, and that thought just adds, it's natural it's tax day yeah no thank you that's that's helpful and um to see um to see the flower to see in the flower the the withering and the collapse of the flower as yeah. being part of the flower and that it's all right. just fine and yeah tax mm -hmm. or spend it's it's all part of the same thing that's it's that's a one cycle yes yes thank you thank you <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
Hi, Beata. Um, hello. I, hello. I wanted to ask you a question. You know, the thing I see in in my in looking at what our life is is that we have we witness these periodic moments of blindness that are personal, but then you know, in the worst of cases, like say in a you know World War when the idea of a Nazism somehow takes hold as a system that right. um, plays on identity and grievance. Identity and mm -hmm. grievance kind of go together. Mm -hmm. and, and then it gets to be something that people start to feel this kind of a shared blindness. I was wondering, do you see it like that? And the other question is, if so, what is in our practice, do you think that you know, we talk about awakening and talk about being able to see things. What is it that we might be able to contribute in times like this, you know, in terms of our practice? Thank yeah, you. it's thank you. I mean, I think that's a vast question. Um, <clears throat> and I feel I, I I do I do think that um, I mean having grown up having spent my formative years in a religious cult where everyone but us was Satan and um, our you know we were a world unto ourselves um, <clears throat> I feel that this this sort of building of a reality that then we can remain in that reality so exclusively. That's what cults do. They build a reality and then they keep you in that reality all the time. You can't look outside it. You can't speak to people outside it. You can't watch TV or read newspapers or any common media. Everything is condemned. So then you become very narrow. And the way you explain reality is all in one hamster wheel of the organization that you're part of. And, and by the way, that reality is logical to you and it's perfectly rational to you. And great hours are spent about how rational that is and how logical it is and how perfectly it explains your whole reality. So you don't think you're being irrational when you're in a cult. You, you think you're the only rational people. Just like we think we're the rational people and they're not. It's, it's a funny, words are funny, but um, so I think this, uh, this I think the, the, that this idea of self-clinging is a tremendous offering that Zen has, that Buddhism has to the world. That can I remain intact as a human being and not cling to some solid idea of myself at the same time. And if I can, then maybe, if we can, then maybe we can talk about things that are, that fit and don't fit for both of us. We can be unsafe, uh, you know, with our ideas because we, we are, um, we are not clinging to some solid idea of, of who I am. So you're right, identity. Identity is the root. And so that's why to me, 
dropping self-clinging is the first requirement of of any kind of ability to see clearly in this. And I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's scary to drop self-clinging at a time like this. What will I be if I, I mean, will I just become him? Will I just seem like I'm a, a, a part of that if I don't cling and somehow defend and somehow hold my own, you know, like announce my own stand? I mean, I don't know. And what would that, what is it if Beata appears in the world as believing something that doesn't fit with what I actually think? I mean, I'll, you know, what would that mean? I guess I could get rejected. I mean, it's, it's a, these are huge, very deep human relational questions. Um, I remember the story of the, of the, um, monk whose friend sewed a jewel in his robe and the monk did not know the jewel was there so he's wearing this robe with this hugely pricey you know very very valuable jewel and he doesn't know the jewel is there and um and i think we have to start looking for the jewel in everyone's robe everyone's robe where's the jewel and maybe they don't even know it's there uh but can i you know can we start to look for the jewel I, I don't know. Help each other see the jewel that's in your own robe uh, rather than looking for the, you know, the poison or the, 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 the danger. Uh, it's a great question. Very deep. Thank you. Hey, Vieta. Uh, thank you for your talk. Um, so, uh, my question is like, uh, from your experience, uh, in, in managing chronic pain, uh, in dealing with that, um, what are some, uh, 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 suggestions or tips that you give to like in general to manage our own suffering, but it could be like, um, general, like handling difficult situations in life, uh, or it could be like physical pain, uh, chronic pain, or, or, or even like, <clears throat> like, uh, how how the capital writes like the, those people felt that anger and that is a kind of suffering inside but they just let it out on other people right like how, how does one uh, manage their suffering uh, yeah that's my question Thanks. thank you i love this question because everyone has chronic pain that's the buddha's first teaching there is suffering there it is <laughs> we all are chronic are, are sufferers of chronic pain um but, uh, well, I would go right to Darlene Cohen's seminal teaching of the one, the 10, and the 100, and about uh, refining one's consciousness um, so that, so it's practices to refine consciousness so that right in the midst of your pain, if you can only notice one thing, and that's your pain, that's not a life worth living. But if you can notice in any moment, 10 things and one of them is your pain that's a little better it's still not enough so if you can refine your consciousness so that in every moment you notice a hundred things and one of them is your pain then your pain is like a radio playing in the next room it's not the predominant feature of your of your mentality all the time and that's what it takes 
It takes a an, an enlar- the ability to enlarge one's awareness and bring in more to allow in more to balance and to nourish uh, the nervous system really and the endorphins and help the body through the through the suffering suffering is real for the body pain is real for the body so we want to help the body through that and um and then um and then and then learn also refine consciousness to be able to narrow focus at will so that can hone in on suffering or hone in on something that's not suffering right in the middle of your pain so is there one, is my big toe not hurting can i put my mind in my big toe and find relief there find a little space there right um so it's about helping you know really working with consciousness that is what uh creating a life worth living in the midst of pain and suffering is about. And that's what our practice is, uh, very conducive to this. Uh, but when in the midst of the crisis is the time to use skills developed, um, it's harder to develop those, those kinds of skills in the midst of the crisis. But certainly can, is done, it can be done. <laughs> so use every moment to develop those kinds of capacities. Thank you. Thank you. It's a joyous practice. That's the good news. It's a happy, joyous, uplifting practice to go about life, you know, uh, expanding to to uh, to notice the the, the one hundred. It's it's quite a uh, an enlivening and uplifting practice. That's the good news. <laughs> thank, thank you, Beata, for initiating this great discussion. Um, my, my, my name is John. I'm here at Chikoji. And um, you mentioned of the jewel sewn into the robe and and also particularly you mentioned that everyone's robe has a jewel in it and we need to find the jewel in all of the robes um and that, that would be the robe of QAnon the jewel in the robe of QAnon the jewel in the role of yes. religious nationalism, the jewel in the roles of uh, those who are uh, wanting um, strongman totalitarian rule. And, and so I'm, I'm uh, maybe trying to shift the gears here a little bit to view um, what do these, what, what can I help these people see? What do these people and their actions have to teach me? How can I be open to that? And, and maybe that will lead me to being able to be more compassionate to them and 
and being able to help them. But I want to start by saying, um, what do they bring to, that I can apply to seeing myself? Can you address that? I think that's an extremely deep personal exploration. You know, um, yes, my question would be, it sort of has to do with that first or that whole, that wholeness of, of reality. Um, that knowing that I, as a human being, will naturally bring bias. I will not see you wholly. I will see parts of you that I'm attracted to. I may see parts of you I'm not attracted to. And based on that push-pull, I will decide whether to hang out with you, right, and get to know you better. And, um, and probably the more I hang out with you, uh, you know, it's possible that I would want more to be with you or less. That's all conditioning. Above and beyond that, in the, I, I always, well, not above and beyond, just maybe beyond that, I know because I practice that there are, there are, there is reality here that I will not see with my limited eyes. So I'm going to stay open to that. I'm going to pay attention to that. And, and those are the jewels. And maybe it's the way you bow after Zazen. You turn to the room and you just bow in such a complete way that it inspires me. Every time you do it, John, it inspires me. You don't even know you're doing it. But I just, wow, look at that. It inspires me. It could be something serendipitous. It doesn't, you know, these are the jewels I'm referring to. And it's not that I think, well, John better bring something. You know, uh, <laughs> I don't think, what does John bring? I, I know John brings because John's a human and a whole reality um, with, with things I'll see and things I won't see. And my practice is to say this too, you know, let, let, me, let me see the whole and, not, be, and not, not just shut down at the part I like or don't like. Um, and I think that's, so I think what does this, what my brother brings, I can speak to him because I know him. I don't know in general. But his fear has a lot of energy in it. How can we sit with that fear and accompany that fear in a way that lets us bring forth its energy together for something maybe, I don't know, something more in that mix. But if I never, if I'm not able to be with his fear, then without being violent or angry or reactive, then it will never become, it will never be transformed, you know? Uh, not that I'm, no, that's not true. It could be transformed by anyone who could be with it. So I don't mean to imply I have to be that person, but if we can't in some way um, be with that, it, then it will remain stuck and it will just be, be sort of cycling the way it now is, won't have any new place to go. So, and then I have to look at myself and say, can I loosen the grip on my own self-clinging so fearlessly that I can actually 
bring his fear in there. And I'm not there. I'm not. I'm too weak. His fear comes out and I go, oh my God. I, I get scared of his fear. And then I just try to remember, I'm afraid of his fear. It's not him. It's his fear. And so then I can think about that a little differently. And maybe next time I talk to my brother, I say something like, hey, you know, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but I have to ask this because your fear scares me. Now we're talking at a different level. Then who's right and who's wrong and who's good and who's bad and who did what to whom and who deserves what and who's wronged and, you know, which never just spinning that energy. So I, I, that's why I said I don't think this is pretty. It's not pretty because we have to go to these, these sort of messy places, these painful places that are painful for both of us, that are probably bigger than both of us also. So also, in addition to our fear, our mutual fear, we also don't know what the hell to do. So we're even more scared. Because we have no idea. Neither of us has any idea. So he's doing what he knows how to do with his guns and his big voice and his 6'4 frame and his everything he has. Right? Scaring the hell out of me. And I'm doing everything I can with my little, you know, <laughs> ways. You know, and, and we're not meeting. Because we're in the wrong conversation, I think. But I have to build up some more strength and skill to prepare. Yeah. Thank you. Great question. Deep practice going on up there in those hills. I have a comment. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I, I understand these uh, QAnon and all that. I, I can actually, you know, relate to the, I mean, I'm, what I'm thinking is I'm sitting there thinking, well, they're wrong, but so am I. Yeah, that's I'm right. I'm really as delusional mm-hmm. as they are. I think yeah. most of them are. I think uh, we believe that re-electing, uh, electing another guy for four years is going to change anything when there's a really interesting report that over a million extinctions in less than two decades. Yeah. Signed by like a hundred scientists, these top scientists. I mean, this is coming. This is a, a fact, you know, and we're equally, and who's, who's the most delusional? This guy who storms the, the White House in his frustration, I mean, the Capitol in his frustration, he does something, right? Or the guy like me who sits and watches TV and says, boy, that's really bad. What can I do? I'll go sit on my cushion. Um, and, and this juggernaut is bearing down on us at, at the present time. I mean, a global warming, right. pandemic. And, and they're like, uh, like, well, which of us is the most delusional? You know? Yeah. yeah. You know? It's like, holy shit, we're all fiddling and Rome's burning. And, and, and you know, I mean, I... I I, I'm, I'm not a hatred person like some of these people have full of hatred, but I, you know, I, I can see the frustrations because nothing changes. Yeah. Their jobs aren't going to get better in four years. You know, their wages aren't going to go up. They're just going to get worse. And a lot of these same people voted, they voted for Trump, voted for Obama. And I mean, they're just frightened and want change. Um, they want better and they don't know how to go about it and to get that. Yeah. Um, but I'm, 
am I any different than that? You know, I, you know, I look at this and I think, you know, I'm just as delusional in my beliefs, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And that's kind of a sobering thought, isn't it? You know? Because, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't want to do. I go run out and charge the Capitol building, scream and rant. Sometimes I just, you know, you feel like breaking chairs because you're just so frustrated because there's, won't, yeah. won't, won't this government of ours wake up? They can't even vaccinate people. I mean, my God, I went through Katrina and I saw the sheer incompetence of the U.S. government. And now you're going to have these bigger problems and you still can't do anything. And I think, yeah. well, you got to change yourself. You know, the change comes within, but then, then it's just, you get this just enormous frustration and you just want to like, okay, I think I'll just go pull the, pull the cup, the bed over, I mean, the, the, the blanket over my head and go to sleep for a while. I don't know. But I understand. <clears throat> frustrations of people and, and it's going to come and it's coming out in different mm -hmm. ways right and, um, and I, yep. I don't have any answers except you know I, I'll go sit on my cushion <laughs> that's really yeah. all yeah. I can do how skillful mm -hmm. how how can I meet it skillfully that's all we can any of us can answer but it's but thank you yes I I could not agree more I think constantly I'm so deluded so Aki Roshi was one of my favorite Zen guys. He said, uh, I am deluded. I am deluded with gold edges. <laughs> with gold edges. Uh, we all live in the dream state. And it's good to remember that. Because what I'm making up is different from what you're making up doesn't make it so. Uh, so we do, that's our frailty. <laughs> and maybe it's a source of empathy and that's its value just realizing that we're all frail humans who cannot see enough really to be skillful fully. So we are doing our best to be happy. My brother's doing his best to be happy. I'm doing my best to be happy. We're all doing that. And we all have very different ideas about what that would look like. Yeah, but it doesn't make us bad or wrong or right or the best or good, <laughs> it just makes us human. Thank you very much. Can you hear me? Yes, hi, Rain. Hi, hi Beata, thank you so much for this morning. Um, the one thing that I really um, wanted to ask you, okay, so we let go, so we're not dragged, but what if we let go and we're still dragged? So it's like we're digging in our heels, resisting. So it can kind of work both ways, right? Because we let go so, we're, so we don't get dragged, but you let go and then you are dragged. So um, there's conflict there. Case, I, I just, like yesterday, my landlord came over and she wanted me to help her um, assemble these masks for um, nonprofit for people, you know, who don't have insurance. And so we went and picked up like 500 of these. And of course I drove, I, I, and I think the, the whole reason I got asked was because I have a truck. And so, you know, I, I, I went and picked them up. But um, it was interesting because my first thought was no, you know, I'm tired, I worked seven days, you know, I. This is my, I, I want to just be home and curl up on the floor. And 
But then I got out of myself and I got drug. And um, I, I helped her assemble these. And now we're going to take them somewhere. I don't know. I mean, it was like a day to, you know, to put 100 together. And we had a week to do it. Wow. But, um, yeah, so that's my thought, you know, is that, okay, I said no, I let go, but I feel better. What do you think? So you're saying you said no? Yeah. And then you ended up doing it anyway. And then I, right. <laughs> so, so, you know, it's a very funny thing you're saying this, Rain. I just love how you always say what needs to be said. I, um, you know, uh, Vicki Austin said something the other day I will share with you because it fits this beautifully. She said, take care of your boundaries so aversion doesn't have to. Take care of your boundaries so aversion doesn't have to. So we, aversion meaning a, you know, sort of a negative like almost sort of what, I hate this phrase, but what we might call passive aggressive response to the other party or something like dragging my no into my yes, right? And uh, rather than just saying no and laying down on my floor, I drag my no into my yes and feel put upon. And Vicky's saying, don't, you know, take care of your boundaries. Otherwise aversion will do it for you. And that harms relationships and harms you. So, so the, the no is actually supportive of uh, health in some way, but it's very hard to hold the, the no when it just means I want to waste my day laying on the floor. But that's not a wasted day if what you need to do is lay on the floor. Darlene Cohen, in the height of her pain, said, hey, whatever gets you through the night, she said she would lay in her bed, pull the covers over her head, and watch Korean television. <laughs> I don't know. Korean TV, right? That was, I don't know. For her, it worked. So whatever works, you know, uh, you do have to take care of yourself and your own heart and, and body, mind. And um, Darlene also talked about generosity, and I think this fits with what you're saying. You know, you want to do for other people. You want to do for the nonprofit and people who have less. And, and she said generosity is not something that we dig deep to bring forth. Generosity is something that overflows when we are full ourselves. It overflows onto others as a function of our own self-care and wellness and uh, well-cared-for boundaries. It's like an overflowing gutter. It's, it's not meant to be dug like a well. <laughs> so generosity depends on the no as much as it depends on the yes. Thank you. Thank you. So if you're still being dragged after you let go, the question is, what am I still holding on to? Something's dragging me. Thank you, Rain. So sweet to see you.
it's just lovely to see people in a zendo. I'm, I'm, I'm just, thank you so much for this. I'm so uplifted by it, really. It's been uh, probably almost a year since I've actually seen people sitting in a zendo. Thank you. Oh, safe pod here, or so we think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll get our nose pulled into our yeses time and time again. Yes. Thank you, Diana, for joining us today, leading this discussion and giving this great talk. Um, let's do our closing. Uh, <coughs> oh, my goodness. Papa, One o'clock. Uh, and then we'll have some announcements. And uh... Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge. And this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jikoji, please visit us on the web at jikoji.org.